So the last two weeks, we've intentionally taken the time to guide through some core values of the church. And for you who have been a part of all of those sessions, making this the fourth time that we've kind of met together over these core values, I want to thank you for that. As Scott mentioned, if you've missed any part of that, we would love for you, especially if you're a church member, uh, we would love for you to be able to attach yourself to those recordings, to those notes, so that you know exactly what it is that we've been talking about. Uh, Next Sunday, you're going to see a big sign in the lobby as you enter in on the north side, and you'll see that sign that has our core, the values that shape our culture, and those will be listed there. I wanted to make sure that you know as a church family what a joy it has been to develop these core values, because as we have sat there, we have prayed about this, and we've studied and researched, and we've had conversation together. And by the way, we brought in some laymen. Uh, that represent our church from different generations, and they came in and uh, were a part of that journey with us and kind of evaluating what we're known as and, and what we want to be identified with as a church body. And the, the neat thing about that was is all 12 of these things that you have seen throughout these two weeks is who we already are as a church. And so that's what makes it a joy to be able to communicate so we don't come this week and be like, oh, man, church, this is the area, and you know, this is a goal that I hope we can attain or achieve or maybe be one day. No, every bit of these cores that we're talking about is something that has already been in the culture of this church. Therefore, it becomes just a natural part to emphasize and to continue to make important. And so thank you, church family, for being that type of body of believers. Let's never take this for granted, by the way. And let's be a crucial part of that growth process, partnering in a unified spirit together. Now, we come to this text today. It's important for us to, to continue our thoughts on these last two core values. And the, the stories can be told of how easily missional drift can happen. Missional drift happens not only in the church, but it can happen in our personal lives. We know what our mission is, we know what our task, we know we're supposed to be focused on, and we can easily drift away from that. There was a research done from Microsoft, and they found out the results that, that our attention span has gone from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. That's our attention span, all right? So I've lost all of you. Let me start over from the beginning. If you have your Bibles, take yourself. Now, comparing that, just, just so for some information to compare that, the goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. So, man, flush me down the toilet, right? I mean, like, good night. What in the world? That The goldfish has a better attention span than we do. But as the church and followers of Jesus Christ, we know that, that God has given us a clear mission. He has given us a clear message, and we know to focus on that. But what ends up happening is, is there's some things that take place in this missional drift. What happens is, is we, we find distractions come into our life, maybe even a, a resistance toward the mission, maybe just plain old lack of desire. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we're constantly evaluating our lives, the church culture that we're a part of to say, okay, what what distractions do I need to eliminate in my own life? What is keeping me from being on point, staying focused on the mission? Okay, then we say, what, um, what change of heart needs to take place that lacks the desire to be involved in the mission? And by the way, in any local church, you're always going to have people who just lack desire to be a part of the mission. So our prayer is, is that God changes and shapes that heart so that they want to be a part of that mission. 
And then the third area is that we have to eliminate the resistance that goes against the mission of God. That's protecting the integrity of the gospel and the purity of the church. And that's a high calling and a high responsibility in our lives, but also with our church. And so we have to eliminate that resistance. And that that happens in a local church. You would find spirit and attitude and mindset that's not just lack of desire, but actually resistant toward the mission that God has called the church to do. And so we're constantly watching that and constantly staying uh, focused with what God would have us to do so that we don't have this missional drift. Now, how many in here would remember the store called Circuit City? Would you raise your hand, Circuit City? All right, everybody over the age of 40, 45, you know what Circuit City is, okay? So Circuit City. Now, if we had an open conversation about these two stores, Circuit City and Best Buy, there's probably a lot of a lot of things that you would have to say about, about Best Buy over Circuit City. It's interesting because they both were started in the 1960s, and they were major competitors until 2008. But Circuit City had this, had this, this shift in their company. They were a, a, a high competitor in the electronic market, and uh, they sold electronics, they sold appliance, they had great customer service. They even had a really wonderful customer experience when you would walk into the door. But something happened within their corporation. They lost their mission. They lost their focus. They went into this, uh, dis- into this pattern of now looking into used cars, and they were making that a part of their corporation, a part of their company. Then what began to happen is their stores then stopped carrying appliances, and then they lost their top tier of managers, and then personal uh, customer service became something that was not a priority to them. Well, all of a sudden, when they had lost focus and their mission in 2008, when their stores had become overwhelmed with debt, they had to file for bankruptcy. So now, 11 years later, Circuit City is just kind of a picture in your mind. You saw the red building with this big gray-looking battery thing on the front, I guess, of their store. And, And you remember some of the experiences you had, but they're no longer in existence. Why? Because they lost their focus, they lost their mission, And they experienced what we call this missional drift. They had lost their way. So what I want to share with us today is how the unstoppable church can avoid the missional drift by staying focused and on point with what God has given us as the unstoppable message. So would you join me in Acts chapter 2 and let's look at a few of these verses beginning in verse number 22. Now there's a lot that's taken place by the way. Um, Ten days after Jesus has ascended to heaven, we know that the Holy Spirit descends in power uh, just as he had promised, and the Spirit launches his great work here in the beginning of chapter number two. He gives incredible power, including the sound of a mighty wind. He gives tongues of fire, the ability of the believers to speak and understand all of these different languages that are being spoken. And so the long-awaited Messiah has come. He's paid for the sins of the world, and, and he has established his kingdom on earth. And now God's kingdom is beginning its mission here on earth. And so we get to Acts 2, and all of this has taken place kind of as the setting. And now look what happens in verse number 22. Ye men of Israel, Peter speaking, Apostle Peter says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. 
him being delivered by the detriment counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Skip down to verse number 32. He says, this Jesus, Peter continues to preach, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. He, he references as he points to the other apostles that are standing with him. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, he's exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. Verse number 36. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly or understand completely that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. This morning, we come alongside with the apostles to see what took place that day and to see this unstoppable message that we partner with today as God's church. Father, we need so desperately your wisdom and your direction through this text. I thank you that I can gain comfort by notes, but I desperately need your power and confidence by the working of the Holy Spirit. And so give us your message today. Give us your theme, that we our minds would be open to your teaching Convict us where we need conviction, bring change in our life, bring encouragement that we would continue to do what we're doing. Help us to be motivated to be a part of the mission. Help Parkway never to fall prey to the missional drift. And so we give this time to you for your honor and glory in Jesus' name, amen. So when we look here in verse number 14, the apostle Peter stands before a large gathering of people who have come together at this experience that we know as Pentecost. Something incredible has taken place as the Holy Spirit has empowered the individuals and has done some mighty things. The sound of a mighty wind, the, the tongues of fire have come and, and, and stood over them. And now they're speaking in these languages and they are so marveled by what takes place. And so as they begin to gather to see what's going on, some mock and say these men are just intoxicated. And Peter gives the explanation and says, guys, it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. He says, there's something greater than your excuse and your attack of intoxication. And so here is where we find that this unstoppable message that Peter gives without any apology, without any hesitation, and he calls out the actions of the people. And so the unstoppable message leads us, church, to being gospel-centered in everything. We are motivated by the work of the cross, and we desire to shape our homes, our marriages, our families, our lives, and our church on the gospel. In verses 22 through 24, the Holy Spirit's work in the hearts of the apostles had the skeptics telling everyone about what was taking place. Now, understand here, 
that this attack was happening already in the early church by the skeptics. And we as the church, a couple thousand years later, we suffer the same attacks by the skeptics. And we can't let that then give us any sense of hesitation and certainly no sense of apology. Because everything is going to go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. What he has done and what he has paid for on our account. But what does that look like in your life? Maybe that skeptic looks like ridicule by a co-worker. Or maybe it's from a family member or some friend. Or maybe it's rejection by a neighbor or a stranger. Maybe even for some of you it has brought some type of hostility into your life because you rightfully claim the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe there is going to be an encounter that you have. College students in here, maybe you're going to encounter a situation on your campus where you're going to have to always be gospel-centered, coming back to the cross of Jesus Christ and not be tossed as we looked at to and fro with every type of foreign teaching that's going to try to take your mind and passion off of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't just happen to the young people. It doesn't just happen to the high schoolers or the college students. It happens to all of us as adults because our minds begin to become interested in other things. Could this really be? Or, I don't know, this seems like such a big step of faith. Or, how does this all piece together? And then we get on YouTube and we start watching all these videos. And good night, there's so much garbage out there that wants to redirect our minds to things that are not in the Bible, and all of a sudden we start to come with these conclusions, and we begin to put God's word aside, and we begin to put man's words in the forefront, and that's a very dangerous place to be. And so we have to stay gospel-centered in everything. You see, Peter didn't let it affect him. Rather, he kept Jesus as the focus, and he did this by simply addressing the heart of the crowd. Did you see that? In our text, they, they, were, they were skeptics and they were mocking why this is happening and he just simply didn't affect him. He's going, to, he's going to appeal to their hearts. He's going to give them words that they're going to connect with. He's going to give them in verse 22 through 24, we already saw it. He says, ye men of Israel, so he addresses them. He talks about the Jesus of Nazareth who was approved by God. He did miracles and wonders and signs. And then he says in verse 23, but he was delivered by the detriment counsel and, uh, and, and foreknowledge of God. And you have taken and by the wicked hands, you've crucified and slain him. Some of these people who are standing there at this day hearing the message of Peter are probably some of the same people who stood in a crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And now as Peter gives the raw reality and truth of focusing back on Jesus, who's not dead in some grave anymore, but came back to life and was victorious, victorious over death, the devil, and sin. And as he speaks this truth, they're starting in their heart to realize, I remember the hatred in my heart that day towards that Jesus when I said, crucify him. I remember the joy in my heart when I saw those thick spikes go into his hands and when they put him up on that cross and people began to mock him, they spit at him and they, they plucked his beard. I remember the emotion of that moment and yes, I was a part of that. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter is speaking now to the heart of these skeptics. And he explains how Jesus was handed over to be crucified, verse 23, but that this was a part of God's complete knowledge, and this was according to his plan. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ caught nobody off guard. This was certainly a part of God's plan, of his foreknowledge to see that the sacrifice would take place. And so Peter 
kept the focus on Jesus when he taught that Christ's death and resurrection was a part of prophecy. And he would tell that in these verses that this was a part all along of what Jesus would come and do, verses 25, 26, 27, and 28. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I want you to turn there and see this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to address something about this gospel-centered life. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this with great fact of Christ's resurrection. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain or without a cause. Verse 3 and 4, circle these, highlight and put some neon sign in your Bible because here is the gospel. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now remember, Paul is not referring to some New Testament text. They're living the New Testament text. He's pointing back to an Old Testament passage, Old Testament text, which was always pointing to the cross, always pointing to Jesus Christ. And so Peter, the apostles, and Paul, all of these men are always staying gospel-centered, even though they're pointing back to Old Testament text, looking forward. And so he continues in verse number 12, and he says, Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? Now, these are not questions. These are statements. He says, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. He says, there's no gospel. There is no message. There is nothing to proclaim if Christ did not come back to life. He says, verse 15, yea, and we are all found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, empty, and you are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep or have died in Christ, they are perished. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. He says in verse number 19, if in Christ we have no hope in this life or only in this life and not in eternity, well, then we are the people that are most miserable. So here Paul is going to speak to the church and he is going to say, everything we do has to be gospel-centered because that's where we find our true hope. That's where we find our future. That's where we find our stability. That's where we find our faith and our trust is that Jesus Christ came back to life. So Paul is going to write that. And I ask myself, we are to be gospel-centered in everything. So where does that look like in your life? Are you striving that in your marriage or in your career, in your church or in your life? Are you doing that in your home, your family, your own pursuits and your own passions? You say, well, what does that look like practically? That means that everything you do, whether therefore you eat, drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So you realize that you've been bought with a price and everything that causes you motivation and passion is always going to be directed to Jesus Christ because of what he's done for you. The ultimate sacrifice that he has done on our part 
So why do we as Christians try to shun Jesus Christ and live life on our own saying, he's not important, but Christian life is a drag. It's too many rules and regulations. I just want the freedom that I can have in living my own life. Instead, we've forgotten how how joyful it is to live in the center of God's will and directing that always to the gospel. Verse 32 and 33, we see that Peter reaches the climax of his sermon when he states that, Jesus is Lord. And this is more than just a term of respect. He is with great purpose giving these words, being no doubt at this point led by the Holy Spirit to speak the words that he will speak so so, um, confidently to these people. Now, this is an indication of Jesus' divine nature. And God has, as the text says, has exalted Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. I think this comes back to why it's so important that we, we don't sugarcoat the gospel just as your fire escape to hell, from hell. We can't just say that this is your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. He's your Messiah. And, and this is all that you need to know about Jesus. Because the Christian life is a call to discipleship. It is a call to surrender. It is a leaving everything behind to follow after Jesus. And our prime examples are the disciples all through the Gospels. And you study the book of John. And you study Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you see these stories of men who were focused on themselves until Jesus looked at them in the eyes and said follow me. And so they left everything behind that they knew and that they were passionate about. Do you think Peter, John, do you think James, do you think they liked fishing? Yeah, it was in their blood. It was everything that they knew. But yet while in the midst of doing their very passion, Jesus said, follow after me and I will change your desires and your passion. You see, so many times we're afraid of following after Jesus because we're going to leave our passions behind. But what we realize is as our, our heart becomes shaped by his heart and mind, our passions and delights change and they become his desires. And we want nothing more than that. So in verse 32, people were confronted that they crucified Jesus as a common criminal. Verse 33, notice the words that he uses here. He said, therefore, being by the right hand of God, he's been exalted. That's where Jesus is now. And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit has come. He hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. So here is going to be the key part in verse 36, because he says that God hath made him this this same Jesus whom you have crucified. Do you see that in there? He says, the one that you have crucified, God has made him to be Lord and Christ, the Messiah. In AD 186, the church leader Polycarp faced a decision before the Roman authorities. He was given the opportunity to, to, opportunity to denounce Jesus Christ as Lord and live or claiming Jesus as his Lord and die a martyr's death. They wanted him to proclaim Caesar as his Lord, not Jesus. And so Polycarp believed that there was no other Lord but Jesus Christ. And so he was urged to deny by friends and family to deny Jesus and so that you could be set free. You can be most effective for God's work if you'll just deny and live. But Polycarp responded with this quote, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Polycarp was then burned alive and pierced with a sword. 
He chose to profess his beliefs that Jesus alone is Lord. Thankfully, no one today is going to put us to a burning stake or pierce us with a sword. But we know that the enemy's tactics are very real in our life each and every day. And the idols that come into our mind to distract us from our mission become the very thing that causes us to denounce that Jesus Christ is not my Lord. Because we begin to follow our flesh. We begin to follow our desires. We begin to grab a hold of everything that this empty world can give us. And that's where we find our most security and our fulfillment. And what ends up happening is that though with our words we would never say that we denounce Jesus Christ as Lord, by our very actions we do that very harsh thing. And we're okay with it because everybody else is doing it. And we're okay with it because we don't see the consequences to be very clear. But the consequences maybe are not lived out at that moment, but they're going to be lived out in the children that we raise or maybe passed on to other generations or friends that we affect or infect. Or maybe it's going to be passed on by our own life and that we're empty and shallow and, and looking for something of fulfillment. And so these are harsh realities that we have to be aware of so that we don't experience the missional drift that takes our eyes off of Jesus as our Lord. Because when Jesus is our Lord, we realize that he is worthy of our worship. And when we find him to be worthy of our worship, there is nothing that can hold that back. Now, last week when we talked about this, this authentic worship in our lives, we realized that this hour is just one small segment of our life of where we worship God. Because true worship happens in our life every day. And it's happening in every circumstance. And it's going in different places. And you are exhibiting and you are living out this authentic worship. And you know what that worship does is it brings joy to your life. I mean, how can you participate corporately? I don't know if anybody, anybody in here is, but how could you, could you worship corporately like this? And those songs, those lyrics, those tunes, that message of hope not stir your heart. How, can you not, how could you sing a song of, of this strong foundation or how could you sing a song about how he lives and because he lives that we can face tomorrow and because he lives, no longer am I dead in trespasses and sins, now I live in Jesus Christ. How can that not stir an emotional reaction upon you? That comes when you are missionally on target because it doesn't matter how you express it. Some people are going to express it differently. Others will raise a hand toward heaven. They open themselves to the blessings of God. Some get emotionally stirred inside while others just stand in their own comfort. And it just doesn't matter how you express it. It's a matter of you feeling it and expressing it. Because the message will not change. The truths will always be real. And those are what cause us to reaction. I know that you in here know how to respond to things. You react to things in your life. If I tell a corny joke, some of you are going to give me one of these. <laughs> That's a response, all right? Now, if I do something really funny, like split my pants open in the lobby, then I get a genuine laugh from you, all right? So we all have our responses of how we do life. So here is where we want to make sure that Jesus is our Lord. Therefore, he's worthy of our worship. 
Now remember, one day all humanity will see and they will bow and they will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so it doesn't matter today if they want to reject who Jesus is. And it doesn't matter if today they want to say that God is not real or that Jesus was just some good prophet or just some man. One day all humanity will bow at the name of Jesus Christ and worship him. And thankfully as the church, we can experience that today and every day. For our hearts have been changed, our mind has been entuned, and we are following after Jesus. Also, he is worthy of our obedience. Because Jesus is Lord and Messiah, he deserves to be the sovereign of our lives. He deserves to be the king in our lives. He deserves to be the master, and we will follow him. He has the right to tell us what to do, and his way leads to joy and fulfillment. So it's really important for us to see that everything we do, not only as a church, but as an individual, a follower of Jesus Christ, it has to be gospel-centered. Number two, the unstoppable message leads us to nurturing and ongoing discipleship. At Parkway, we impart truth, accountability, and tenacity while developing mature followers of Christ. Do you realize that the night before his death, Jesus told his disciples about the Holy Spirit's ministry? If you want to write it down, John 16, verse number 8 through verse number 12, Jesus said this, And when he has come, who's he? The Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see no more, or see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus had a lot he needed to tell them or wanted to tell them, but the, the guys were just mind-boggled. They were the, blowing their minds away. And this one teaching and one truth about what the work of the Holy Spirit would be was that he would come and do conviction. And so Peter's sermon broke the crowd's heart. This was not Peter. We can't lift Peter up. This is not because of the messenger. This is not because of the eloquent speaking of Apostle Peter. This is because there was great power by the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had already told them about 50, 50 days before this that the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict of sin. Convict of sin because they won't believe me. And so many in the crowd turned to the apostles with great deep conviction and they asked, what must we do? And so they were broken of their sin. They were broken of rejecting and, rejecting and murdering Jesus. And in verse 37 and 38, we know that preaching is meant to open people's heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not to condemn them. That's a really important thing for us to digest. Let me say it again. Preaching of the word of God is meant to open people's hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not to condemn them. The word condemn, meaning like to judge, rebuke, or sentence. And so condemnation, well, it brings a general feeling of hopelessness. Yes, there's a revelation of our sin and our shortcomings, but it causes us just to be rebuked and to realize that there's no hope. But conviction brings an awareness of the specific sins in our life, the specific attitudes and habits that we have that need to be changed. See the difference in condemnation and conviction? So by the way, 
One of the things that I learned several years ago as a, a younger pastor is they said, with your church family, always teach them how, what to look for in the next pastor. Now, I said that to a pastor friend recently, and he said, well, why in the world would you do that? I said, well, if God ever took me away from the scene or eliminated me from the process, I want that church to remain healthy, thriving, and be able to find the man that God would want them to be their shepherd, to lead them as a body. Now, if you have the idea that if God removes me, you're going to find somebody 180 from Peter Grant, well, then we got problems we need to talk about today. And uh, maybe you just send me on my way, I guess. I don't know. But, but here's an issue that I want to teach all of us about, is let's not sit under preaching that is motivated by condemnation, but that is always led for Holy Spirit conviction. Condemnation comes from man. And guess what? I could rattle off a lot of rebuke and judgment on you today, but what does that do? Hey, I sit on the front row with you today. I sit on that front row asking God to teach us his message and to allow the Holy Spirit to convict. That purposely is something I put into every Sunday's prayer before the message is that the Holy Spirit would bring us conviction. I could stand up here and, and, and read my message or I could read the text and give you three thoughts and if the Holy Spirit has empowered that moment, he will work. This has nothing to do with your preacher. This has nothing to do with your pastor. The message that we hear on a weekly basis is being fueled and empowered by the Holy Spirit that he would take his message and change our hearts together. So don't ever, ever sit under the preaching that is fueled by and motivated to be full of condemnation. That's a place where you don't need to be, and that's a man who has abused his privilege and honor to be the messenger of the gospel. Today, the Holy Spirit does the conviction, just like he did 2,000 years ago. When you look at this text, it was not Peter, it was not his condemnation, it was the Holy Spirit's work. And so would you prepare your heart before every time that the word of God is given to you? I know that in my heart, I prepare every time before I preach, I have certain things that I want to talk to God about before I stand before you. But would you do your part? Would you be willing to prepare your heart to be open and to be in tune to what God gives us together? Would you be willing to take some time on a Saturday night or an early Sunday morning? Would you be willing to calm your spirit and your heart so that God could talk to you and the Holy Spirit could convict you? Would you be willing to come open and ready instead of closed and, and rejecting? Would you be willing to say, God, put me on mission, keep me on point, help me to stay focused and use whatever I will hear from my connection class or from the pulpit or whatever I will hear from the, the radio or from my devotions, all of that is going to be used in my heart and life. And this goes back to this thought of why it's so important with nurturing and ongoing discipleship. Because what that is, is it's open hearts to be taught. It's open hearts that are willing to be accountable. And in verse 38, oh, the trigger verse, the, 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 the problem verse. So many people will grab a hold of this verse and they will say that, that baptism has to be a part of salvation. And this is the verse that they go to. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Now, we go over this in our Discover Parkway class, and it's really important for people to understand that baptism is not a part of salvation. 
Now, baptism is going to be the outward expression. It is going to be the outward evidence, the outward step, the outward obedience that proclaims your relationship, your new relationship in Jesus Christ. This is the only time in the book of Acts that the wording is going to be used in this way that Peter will say. There are going to be other times where Peter, after Pentecost, on different occasions, he is going to specifically charge the people to repent so that their sins may be blotted out. Chapter 3, verse 19. He never a mention of baptism. At other times, he uses words belief or faith as they're mentioned for the basis for forgiveness. So here in this phrase of chapter 2, verse 38, it should be understood as forgiveness of sins as a result of repentance. And by the way, don't let a, a tainted gospel tell you that repentance is not a part of salvation. Because there is that message that's trying to be poured out today. And we don't need another element in our culture that takes away from um, ownership. Because what repentance is, is it's taking direct accountability for the wrong that you've done. That's repentance. So it says, I want a change of direction. I know where I have goofed and I want to do differently. And so that's a key element to this salvation experience. Now, we must help people to change their direction, and we must help people to grow in their life in Jesus Christ. How many people have you encountered in your Christian journey that they said, yeah, I was saved as a teenager or saved as a young adult, but I don't know much about Jesus? How old are you? I'm in my 60s. What do you mean? You've been saved for 40 years. You don't, you don't know much about Jesus. That was someone who was just notched in somebody's belt as the next convert that they can shout hallelujah about another one going to the kingdom of God, but no love and compassion in that heart to share the growth process of this new relationship in Jesus Christ. That's why it's important for us to grab a hold of what the Great Commission really is. If you go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission is not just go, 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 get people saved, get people saved. He says to train them, he says to, to reach them, to bring them to Christ. Then he says to baptize them and then to teach them. And so at Parkway, we cannot take that lightly. We must be investing in people. And this investment is a part of the nurturing and ongoing discipleship. In verse number 42, we finish with this. There was a proper priority that was placed on the teaching of the apostles. And uh, no church will be healthy if it does not make a priority of the correct teaching of God's word. Parkway, let's keep the pulpit hot. Let's make sure that our guest speakers stay on target and they are messengers of the truth and that they speak clearly from dissecting properly the word of God. As your pastor shepherd, you have my word that I will do the best of my ability to bring people into this pulpit who will do that very thing, staying properly in the word of God to dissect it correctly and to speak truth into our lives. Also, we would find here with this nurturing and ongoing process is that as a disciple or follower of Jesus, we are first a learner, which is why the teaching was such an essential part of this new body of believers. Did you see in verse 41, if you're not familiar with the text, they said, what shall we do? He says, repent, be baptized every one of you because of the forgiveness of your sins. And then verse 41, so they that gladly received the word, they went ahead and obeyed, they were baptized. And in the same day, there were added unto this group three, about 3,000 souls, 3,000 people were saved that day. And so now the church is exploding and they're going to continue steadfastly, foundationally, firmly in the teaching of the apostles. We know that the power of the gospel brings us salvation, but it also brings us growth. 
And we must all be a part of that growth process. This fellowship or this partnership in verse number 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. So the word fellowship here is partnership. It's the importance of growth of a Christian. Let me ask you this question. Who are you partnered with in this life? They say, well, I got my wife, I got my husband, I got my coworkers, I got my boss. But I want to talk about spiritual partnerships. Some of you are just okay with living in isolation. And I don't think that's biblical. And so my question for you is, what spiritual relationship do you have that you want to see grow? And you say, well, nobody cares about me. Nobody's asking me. Get over that. You go after them. And if you will earnestly pray about it, God will bring somebody to your mind. And if you will be faithful and fervent in asking God, you'll be amazed at how he puts the pieces together. Remember, God's will does not happen by accident. God's will doesn't just boom, fall into place. He's going to guide us and lead us, and he wants our participation in praying through that. Now, would you pray about being a part of the discipleship journey at Parkway? Phase one, we've had 33 people participate. Phase two, we've had 12 The people that are currently in it, we have another dozen people. And the senior saints are starting in September on Friday mornings at 10 a.m. to go through the discipleship phase together. And so that'll be another 12, 14 people. There are 10 right now that are praying about participating in either phase one or phase two. It's a matter of that just being in you that says, I want to see growth in my life, but also pouring that into somebody else. We don't want to make it complicated but we do want to be very purposeful with it. Now, do you know the original mission statement of Harvard University? Let me tell you what it is. Quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well, the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. And seeing that the Lord only giveth wisdom Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Harvard University. I think it's changed, if I'm not mistaken. When the school was founded in 1636, the administration hired only Christian professors. The formation of Christian character was a top priority for students. And ministers were trained and equipped to share the gospel. Today... Harvard maintains a legacy of academic excellence, but has lost its original mission, a phenomenon often described as missional drift. The university lost sight of its original purpose. There's a quote in there in your notes by Ravi Zacharias. Outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is no hope in this world. That cross and resurrection at the core of the gospel is the only hope for humanity. Wherever you go, ask God for wisdom on how to get that gospel in, even in the toughest situations of life. So Parkway, let's stay gospel-centered in everything with nurturing and ongoing discipleship because we have an unstoppable message and a mission that God has put us on. So let's not experience missional drift and completely lose our focus. With much prayer, let's stay on task for the glory of God.